You're listening to Work Tape, episode 77. podcast it's your boy money mitchell we got isaac groove and grover once again in the last couple of episodes we had talked about some artists who recently left us in 2022 and in that conversation that isaac and i had last episode we had mentioned the overall greater topic and narrative of posthumous releases in music and the differences that have happened in regards to the release of posthumous music, whether it would be records from Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley, Michael Jackson, or even something more recent, such as Pop Smoke, Juice World, and the late great Mac Miller, there is notable differences a lot of times in the way that a label or an estate will handle the release of posthumous music um, after an artist has died. And actually, it's really interesting because I think I remember seeing an Instagram post from Anderson Pack where he got a clause that's like tattooed on his arm, basically saying that there's no unauthorized release of any music after he's passed, basically. It's really interesting how he decided to tattoo that on himself. But I guess maybe he is familiar with how exploitive posthumous releases can be. So, you know, consent and authorization is, you know, really everything, I think, when it comes to deciding to release music out of the vault. Even Prince. Prince has supposedly, like, stockpiles of music in Paisley Park, some of which I think we've seen recently with some of the tapes coming out. And I think the estate even put out a whole album like I think either last year or the year before, but who knows how much of that music we'll actually really get to see, especially because the artists that we've mentioned all kind of had a bit of a perfectionist kind of thing. But one example of posthumous music that was done, I think really respectfully and tastefully was the last Mac Miller album, Circles. With Mac Miller, he unfortunately died of an overdose Um, Not too long after he put out Swimming, which also is a great album. And as a matter of fact, Swimming is kind of a companion record to Circles. But what they were able to do with the recordings that he had, I think, was really, really well done. And they brought in, I forgot the dude's name that they brought in, but they brought in a really great composer who was more accustomed to doing like film scores. And they were able to piece the elements together. Was he like a Hans Zimmer-esque type individual? Yes. Yes, it was not Hans Zimmer himself, but yes. I figured not. Yes, but someone in the same caliber of that. And the result was just really beautiful music and a really well-done release, as opposed to, say, the Juice World album or the Pop Smoke album that they tried to compile together or even the XXX Tentacion record where a lot of the recordings were kind of low fidelity. Some of the recordings on that X record actually sounded like voice memos, like voice demo recorded things that you would put through like your notes app or something. And they were kind of scrambling to just piece as many elements as they could to make you know, a product. And I think that's kind of like where the distinction comes in when the release is done in a way where it doesn't feel 
like a product, I think that's kind of when it's really beautiful and really nice when you kind of hear a little bit of some gears turning in the production and the music. That's kind of where I think it draws the line a little bit. And of course, being the big reggae aficionado that you are, Isaac, Bob Marley had a bunch of posthumous music that came out, I believe, in the 90s, early 2000s, when they started taking his voice and pairing it with other artists, most notably Lauren Hill for Turn Your Lights Down Low, one of his classic songs. And I think that that was a really good example of actually, at least in my opinion, doing a posthumous release and taking a very familiar Marley track and kind of reinterpreting it for a newer generation, putting Lauren Hill on it. And also just because Lauren Hill, I think, had a ton of influence from Bob Marley with the Fugees. But I would be curious to hear kind of what your thoughts are on like that particular set of recordings and how you felt about the Marley estate putting out Bob's music posthumously. So first things first, you know, he passed in 81. And 83 was his, well, not only was it his last studio record, but that was his first posthumous studio release. And I think that was the only studio posthumous release of his. I don't really know too much of the history. That's something to get into in Confrontation. That's from 1983. And that was released after Uprising, which is from 1980. And, you know, that one has Could You Be Loved, has Bad Card, Coming in from the cold, confrontation has jumped, and all these. Uh, that's the one that has Buffalo Soldier. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Confrontation, I think, is probably his weakest record, and sometimes I kind of don't even count it because even though I've kind of grown to love it, I really do like that record. It's not my favorite by his. It's probably my least favorite of his catalog of just the Whalers catalog. Period. But it's still pretty good, right? You know, for being not that great of an album, in my opinion. It, it, it feels like just a conglomeration of songs, like a collection. It doesn't feel like a unified album. Mm-hmm. It's more conceptual, in my opinion. I think it just has some good songs. But as an album, I don't think it's a great record. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. And so a year later, they released Legend, which is, you know, the compilation. And that's 1984. And my opinion of greatest hits records, I'm kind of like, I get it, but I'm not a fan of greatest hits records. I find a lot of them tacky. Now, usually the bigger the band, the more I hate them. <laughs> but if the band is smaller, like Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, I was able to kind of discover that band through the greatest hits. And I do think that greatest hits serve a purpose. I just don't like them for leisure. I think greatest hits are really good to kind of get to know an artist or a band and just to get a feel. But I honestly think a lot of greatest hits records, especially for really big bands, they tend to be kind of a dishonest view into what the band or artist is like. And the reason why I say that is because I notice with a lot of big artists, especially bands, the greatest hits are really, in my opinion, not the best. It's not really the average. Like most of your songs aren't going to be hits anyway. So really what you're presenting is just what culture would say is their best songs, right? Now, that's also opinion because a lot of hits, I don't care if it's Coldplay, Foo Fighters, Bob Marley, I find them boring and that's just a personal preference. I have a little bit more of an underground kind of blood in my flavor of music. I just prefer it. Some people prefer the hits, right? So it just depends on the person you are. I can swing either way in the pendulum 
but I tend to swing more toward, I call them the pocket tracks because you find them in the pocket. You find them kind of stuck between the couch. But once you pull out of the couch, you're like, oh, that's amazing, right? And so the pocket tracks, if we're going to use that same analogy, tend to be my favorite for whatever artist it is. Now, a band like Nirvana is pretty exceptional. That's more of an exception because their catalog is so small compared to a lot of bands. Mm. And so their hit songs are actually pretty good. Yeah. Like objectively to me, you compare Nirvana's hits to like Foo Fighters or Bob Marley, and they're way better in relation to the rest of Nirvana's record than in my opinion, if you compare Bob's hits to the rest of the Whalers. I mean, yes, Get Up Stand Up is my favorite song of all time. That's, by the way, my favorite song of all time, if you ever wanted to know. Like, of all time. Mm-hmm. Song of choice. Yeah, that is if I were to, you know, my Desert Island song would be Get Up Stand Up. Yeah. That tells me everything I need to know about music. Grooving bass line, it has piano, it has guitar. That song, to me, is pretty much perfect. And it's got a hook. And it's catchy. And the cool thing about that track is that you hear Bob and Peter sharing verses and the bridge. Yeah. And you hear Bunny in there too, but it's them playing as a unit and it was their best iteration. That's before they incorporated horns into the material, which I love horns in reggae. I think it's an essential, but there's something about the pre-horn whalers, which is really nice too. It's different. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, some hits are exceptional. But like most hits, especially with like Coldplay, again, with the exception of Clocks, that's a great one. But pretty much the rest of the hits, I kind of don't like out of context. I'd rather listen to them in the album. Mm. So it's not really me hating the artist. It's just a lot of the hits I find are a bit too vanilla for my flavor. And I would much rather mix them up with more pocket tracks. Mm. So that's just kind of a side note. But yeah, with Legend... They released that, and that was three years after he had passed away. And so you get into the 1990s. Who says that? I should have just said 90s. <laughs> you get into the 90s, and you know they're doing more collaborative posthumous releases where, again, like the Lauryn Hill collaboration, if you want to call it that, and then later on. Honestly, with an artist like the Wailers, it's just like the Beatles. Sometimes they just, it, oftentimes, honestly, what happens is They're trying to see how many times they can re-release something to cash it. And I get it, you know, for as a business model, it's pretty genius. And in fact, if you wanted to go full on unethical business, it's a great idea, right? But if you care about the artist and you respect the artist's family, and you also just respect the fact that they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. If you just respected that, we wouldn't have a bunch of re-releases of the exact same material but just released slightly differently or at a different time. It's like they released the exact same music, but at a different time because, oh, it's the holidays. So this is a Christmas release, but it's like, yeah, but it's the same songs we've known for the past 30 years. Mm. So for me, it gets a bit old. And I say a bit very conservatively. (laughs) Sure. But with Bob Marley, I'm kind of telling you that I personally am not much of a posthumous release kind of guy. I take it pretty case by case. Mm -hmm. And I guess some people do too, but I'm more wary of them. I've seen what's happened with Jimi Hendrix, with Kurt Cobain. It gets really old to see these legal battles between people who are, you know, like someone's always trying to defend an artist and then the other one is like saying, no, but we have a liberty to do this. So we want to cash this cow, right? And I'm just like, 
you know, just let them be dead. I mean, I get it. Maybe there's some unreleased songs like with the Wailers or a ton of unreleased tracks. And that's different, though. Yeah, right. But trying to re-release the same song over and over with like a slight edit or like a new artist today from like a 30 year difference, it just kind of is it can work. That's what I'm saying. It's case by case with Lauren Hill. It's kind of cool because Lauren Hill's, you know, she's rad, right? Yeah. It's not really even my favorite Bob Marley track. It's an underrated one. Well, eh, it's not fully underrated because it's from his most overrated album. Hmm. So it's not really that underrated of a song. It's a every song on that album, people hold in pretty high regard. Was that off of Exodus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was off of Exodus from 77. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's a great record. It's one of my least favorites of his, though. But it's still mm. good. It's like in the upper, sorry, lower upper or the higher lower part. But it's like more in the middle mm. rather than at the very top. I, I see you. Yeah. Honestly, the song is not my favorite to begin with, right? Sure. So to me, it's a bit boring. It's almost so ballady. I'm like, uh, okay. Like, I like that song, but... You know what I mean? I couldn't care less that Lauren Hill did a feature on that, even though I have huge respect for her. So it's not really a personal thing. It's just I'm not that big on a song to begin with. I need to listen to that song in the album to really appreciate it. I hate listening to it by itself. I don't know. It's like eating something without a sauce, right? You need something or without seasoning. Sure. You know, you can eat it, but you're really not going to appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I guess there's a similar argument to be made even with of course, one artist that has had a ton of posthumous music actually come out. Jimi Hendrix is one of the worst ones, but go on. Oh, yeah. They had a Hendrix track with Zane of former One Direction fame. I forgot what the name of the song was, but it was kind of a deeper cut Hendrix track with Zane, And it was very split. There was a lot of people who absolutely despised it. There were some people who actually gave Zane a fair amount of credit for going and trying something out the credit or the comfort zone, excuse me. But honestly, I just like that felt like a bit of a cash grab for sure. You talk about the idea of them re-releasing or slightly tweaking existing tracks for kind of the purpose of a cash grab. And that kind of really felt like one. And it was kind of an odd artist to collaborate with, to be kind of honest with you. I feel like that's also one of the things where if they're going to do kind of like through technology, you know, having somebody, you know, duet or, you know, be on the same track like they did with Lauren Hill and Bob Marley. I feel like you at least need to pick an artist who captures the vibe and the spirit of the artist, you know? And I think that's kind of why uh, with the Marley track, the Turn Your Lights Down Low, despite that being kind of maybe a not so strong Marley track. I feel the reason why that collab worked was because Lauren Hill and like the Fugees and all that embodied the spirit and embodied like the vibe of what, you know, Marley was doing. And it made sense, especially for the time because she was, you know, rising star at that point. But Hendrix with Zane just doesn't make really much of any sense in really any context, to be quite honest with you with Zane being very much in the pop vein and Hendrix being blues, psychedelic rock, that just doesn't quite mesh well with me. If they would have done something like Hendrix and Gary Clark Jr., that would have been a better combination or, you know, something along those lines. 
You know, honestly, you bring up a good point. It's not even the fact that they're doing a posthumous release. It's literally, like you said, the pairing is so odd. It's almost clearly a cash grab. Yeah. Of course, they're going to use a bigger artist, right? They're going to use this big artist of the past within a big artist of now. It's like pairing him with Lady Gaga, right? And it's weird because you don't want to get judgmental and say, oh, Lady Gaga can't listen to the Beatles. Well, that's kind of a cliched one. I don't know. Like, she can't listen to Deep Purple, right? Sure. I mean, you don't want to be a gatekeeper, right? You know, you don't want to be a music elitist. Like, you know, music's for everyone, regardless of the artist that they portray themselves to be, because it really is just a portrayal. But it gets to a point where it's like, okay, that's a cash grab. Yeah. It's not even authentic. It's like they're just trying to one big artist with another big artist. They don't care what the genre is. They're like, let's do it. Sure. All right, let's do it. Okay, now we're done. Let's bang this out so we can now bang the next one so we can get some more money. You know, so it's like it gets a bit, there's an inauthenticity. And I know the music industry was really lacking inauthenticity from the beginning. It really was. But the last thing we need is more of that attitude, you know? Yeah. And like I said, I think you kind of talked earlier about like a case by case thing. And that's probably a very recent example where it was just kind of like, yeah, that wasn't really the, the strongest pick. Also, Lauren Hill's different because that worked with Turn Your Lights Down Low because there's an R&B flavor to both artists. Yeah. Well, and especially like on that track too, like that was more of, you know, uh, R&B kind of slow, more slow jam type of song for Bob Marley. It made sense for Lauren Hill to jump on it. Although to be honest with you, I would say that as a song goes, off of that same record of Exodus, I would say Waiting in Vain is a better song. <laughs> I was just thinking that because they have a similar flavor, both of them. Yeah. But Waiting in Vain is so great. I love that song. But then like Turn Your Lights Down Low is almost like, it almost feels forced. I won't lie. I'm not saying that it was, but I mean, I get it. You don't want to put reggae or genres into like a box like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. Like, of course you can do whatever you want. It's just that's probably one of Bob's most kind of out of character tracks, honestly, especially for such a big album. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know if that's even Aston on the bass because I mean, it might be him, but it sounds like it literally sounds like James Jamerson or something like that. You know, like the do, 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 but he does a do, 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 do. I think he does that, but yeah. So I could hear Aston doing that, but I mean, if anything, it's kind of cool that he did a different style and he was playing more Motown, but it still felt a little weird, in my opinion. As cool as that song is, because I respect it, but that felt weird to hear Bob and the band on that track. It was nice. I mean, Junior Marvin sounded fine because Junior has such a bluesy way of playing. You know, his guitar noodling sounds better on that track than anyone else in that song. I mean, the bass playing's cool. I mean, the whole song sounds good. So I'm going to take that back. The whole song sounds fine. Yeah. But I still feel like it was kind of an odd track for Bob to do. Yeah. So that's just my personal opinion. He's done weirder, by the way. Well, of course he has. But yeah, as you mentioned with Motown and the re-release of the same product over and over again, or the same artistic expression over and over again, how many times are they going to re-release What's Going On by Marvin Gaye? You know, for me... I love that album. What's Going On is my favorite album of all time. Rolling Stone actually got it right and had it as the greatest album of all time, which I think is very well deserved. I I agree with that. But it's just like, 
how many times are they going to, you know, change up the packaging on that and re-release it? And I guess in one way, I understand because it is such a poignant album and it still is hitting, but that's going to be saved for another episode um, in terms of just kind of overall, I guess, perplexion in regards to why um, there's a a re-release on that one and um, how many various anniversary editions they're going to do of (laughs) that record. Thriller is another record that kind of falls into that category as well, Yep, which we can definitely talk about in the next episode um, in terms of um, basically the same thing, just a different pile. Literally. So once again, that's been uh, this edition of the Work Tape Podcast. It is your boy, Money Mitchell, Isaac Groove and Grover, and uh, we will be hitting your airwaves for the next one. All right. Peace. Catch y'all later. <laughs>